Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Retired special agent Bruce Sackman has become a leading expert in the field of medical serial killers. And although having not dealt directly with the most infamous of them all, Bruce tells us how he was shown firsthand the utter devastation caused by Dr. Harold Shipman. Next on Protect and Serve. I've investigated a number of arsons which have been committed by volunteer firefighters because they like the thrill, they like to be called to this really disastrous scene of a massive bushfire. And a lot of those I undertook in Australia because the climatic conditions are perfect for the, for the perfect fire. Now, doctors and nurses sign a statement to say they'll look after people, they'll, you know, they'll give them the best treatment they possibly can. Why do you think it is that they then turn into these horrendous individuals that then end the lives of people prematurely. Why do they become bad? Well, you know, it's very interesting. And over the years, um, I'm frequently asked that question. And my, my answer is that there are different reasons. It's not like one size fits all. But I'll tell you what I've seen the most. And the most is very similar to that firefighter uh, example you just gave, something we refer to as Munchausen syndrome by proxy, also known as factitious disorder. And this is what it, an example of this. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is, let's say, for instance, a mother might intentionally harm a child, bring that child into the hospital to show the staff 
what a caring, loving parent they are, even though they actually harm the child to begin with, to bring that attention to them. And we have throughout the world, a number of nurses and some doctors who love the excitement of a code. And now what a code is, if somebody goes into cardiac arrest and the doctors and nurses come running in and there's a crash cart, well, this is as exciting as it can get Mm. for nurses and doctors. And this is their opportunity to shine. This is their opportunity to show the world that they're not just an average nurse or an average doctor, but they are the greatest when it comes to codes. One of my medical serial killers in the book, Kristen Gilbert, doctors used to say, you know, if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert there. She takes charge. She starts barking orders to the young interns that are scared out of their mind. She's just sensational. And this is her opportunity to shine. So that Munchausen syndrome by proxy, that's actually fairly common throughout the world. The other one is that many, many of these uh, medical serial killers had their lives controlled by other people until they got into the hospital. They had very domineering spouses, parents, and this was their opportunity to finally have power and control over people that they never had in their life. Because the ultimate power is to um, take someone's life and particularly get away with it, all right? So after a lifetime of being told what to do and how to do it, these people now say, wow, I'm able to control life. I'm even able to take lives and nobody even questions me. Nothing happens. I finally have that power that I never had before. And those are the two main reasons that I've seen. And there, there are some others, but those are the two main reasons that I've seen throughout the world why people commit these murders. Uh, it, it, it's, it's terrible. And I look, also ask yourself this question. If you're so inclined to commit a series of murders, uh, what profession and what location might you choose? All right. Well, first of all, you want to choose a location where death is a common everyday occurrence, and that's certainly at a hospital or a nursing home, right? Second, you want to work where um, people have taken an oath, all right? They've taken an oath to save lives. You know, doctors take this Hippocratic oath. Nurses take something called the Florence Nightingale oath. So they have dedicated themselves to saving lives. So who's going to think that in an environment where people are dedicated their lives to saving people, somebody's actually kind of dedicated themselves to taking lives. We're not going to believe it. We can't believe it. We've seen that nurse Bruce save people before. And you're telling me now he's uh, killing people. We can't believe it. And what about choosing a profession where the victim and the family trust you implicitly? Listen to that doctor, sweetheart. Listen to that nurse. They have your best interest in mind. And of course, 99% of the time, that's true. They do have your best interest in mind. You know, how about working where there's a real shortage of people? You know, in some places, and I'm sure it's, it, it's true in the United Kingdom too, I mean, we can't Mm -hmm. find nurses. We have to go all the way to the Philippines to get nurses. 
and, yeah. and physicians too. So you know what? If we didn't do such a perfect job on their background investigation, well, excuse me, we couldn't find anybody. You know, if the enemy's coming over the wall, do you have time to do a background investigation on every soldier that you're going to put on the front line? No, you put that soldier up there. And that's what sometimes we have to do. We don't really have a choice. You know what I mean? So do these people become doctors as a way to kill or do they decide to kill after they have become doctors? What's your experience? I Again, I think it varies. It really varies. I think that Swango actually, I, I think that many of them are conflicted. And I, I, I don't think that most of them go into the profession with that in mind. Sometimes things happen in their lives. Some medical serial killers have become addicted to drugs. Some medical serial killers have been involved in very bad personal re relationships. So sometimes things happen in their lives that make them change from saving lives to taking lives. But I don't think that most medical serial killers enter the profession with that goal in mind. I think something happens to them along the way and then they turn from saving lives to taking lives. And that's what I've seen most of the time. But I'm not sure about Swango. I'm not really sure if that's something that he just always wanted to do. Um, not sure. Our biggest example here in the UK of a similar case to Swango is the former Dr. Harold Shipman that sends a shiver down the spines of most UK hospitals and general practitioner surgeries right across the country. He killed over 300 people of an elder, generally of an elderly demographic. Dr. Harold Shipman was brought to Thameside Magistrates Court to face charges of murdering an elderly patient and forging her will. A family doctor from Manchester who was charged last month with murdering one of his patients and forging her will has appeared in court accused of killing three more women. The Greater Manchester GP Dr. Harold Shipman has been charged with another seven murders. Dr. Shipman is already accused of killing eight patients and he'll face one of the largest murder trials in British history. Guilty of murdering 15 of his patients, Harold Shipman is sentenced to life. Tell us your knowledge and understanding of that particular case. And for those of those our listeners who don't know who Harold Shipman is, maybe in the US or, or overseas, give us a bit of a breakdown as to your knowledge of him. Sure. Well, Dr. Harold Shipman um, is the undisputed, undefeated champion of medical serial killers. As you said, suspected of killing about 300 patients. The thing is about medical serial killers, they kill so many people that even when they want to cooperate, they can't even remember how many people they killed. So Harold Shipman started killing people as soon as his, almost his first day at work in the hospital. And the thing about Harold Shipman is his mom. When Harold was young, you know, his mom was very ill and he kept giving her morphine to help her. Well, she passed on and it was very traumatic to him, very traumatic. So when he was in medical school, he actually became addicted to some drugs himself. And he started killing many elderly people, which was almost like watching his mother pass away again and uh, sort of re reliving that terrible experience. 
But what's also unique about Harold Shipman is not only did he keep people in hospitals, but when he left the hospitals, he made house calls. And I had the opportunity to walk through the streets with a detective after the case. And he said, Bruce, Dr. Shipman killed somebody in that house and somebody in that house and somebody in that house. And he would actually go to their homes and he would give them morphine or heroin and he would he would kill them. And the way he got caught is very interesting. The way he'd probably still be doing this today. The way he got caught is that he actually changed the will of one of his victims and made himself the beneficiary. He was having a lot of financial problems. And one thing led to the next. There was another physician in England back in the 50s who did that, but he was actually acquitted. And just to go show you how difficult it is to make these cases, um, I think Harold Shipman may be, may be the only physician who was ever convicted of killing multiple patients in the history of England, going back to the Norman Conquest. I mean, wow. these cases are incredibly difficult to make. So Harold Shipman was so scary. He was, he became like the town doctor that everybody knew and everybody liked. And since so many of his patients were elderly, nobody questioned anything. Nobody suspected anything. If he didn't change that will of the last patient in the family questioned that, and one thing went to the next, the authorities started to exhume bodies. Um, he probably would have never been caught, which makes you sit back and think, what the heck's going on today <laughs> that we don't even know about? I mean, we've, we've tracked maybe 150 of these cases or so, going back as far as we can. But um, is that the extent of it? Well, I, I tend to doubt it because look how many people have to die before somebody even raises the question is what's going on, all right? Mm. I mean, you know, um, there, there, there was a medical serial killer in, in the United States. His name was Donald Harvey. And Donald Harvey was quoted as saying, after I murdered the first 15, excuse me, how many? The first 15, and nobody even questioned it, Wow. Well, I started to believe I was ordained by God himself to do this, okay? Some of them had been in comas for many, many, well, semi-comas, in and out. Didn't know nothing. What I was doing, I thought was right. And the patients that I took care of, I like to thank, you know, I made their passing easy. They didn't give me permission, no. But some of the patients didn't have no one to give permission for them. And, uh... 15 people, I mean, I could tell you stories in Italy where 20, 25 people have died and then somebody raised a red flag and says, you know what, maybe, maybe this is not a statistical anomaly. Maybe there is something actually wrong here. And that too contributes to the reason why medical serial killers are allowed to kill so many people. Now, Harold Chipman finally has some real competition. He has some competition from a nurse in Germany called uh, Niles Hogel. Niles Hogel is, by his own admission, killed over 100 patients, but the German police believe the number's actually closer to 300. Well, here in Germany, a court has sentenced one of the world's most prolific serial killers to life in prison. 
Former hospital nurse Niels Hogel has been found guilty of killing 85 patients in his care. Prosecutors said that he deliberately induced cardiac arrest in patients so that he could then resuscitate them and impress his colleagues. And what's interesting about whether it be Harold Shipman or whether it be Swango or whether it be Niles Hogel is how they are able to travel from hospital to mm. hospital. And the first hospital may suspect something, but they don't say anything to the second hospital because they're so happy that Swango or Shipman or Hobel has moved on to the it's next gone. hospital. And then hospital number two, they suspect something, but do they say anything to hospital three? Of course not. They're just happy that these individuals have moved on to hospital three or hospital four. And that's also one of the reasons why they're able to kill so many people. Well, let's talk about your second most notable case. You brought it up a little while ago in Kristen Gilbert, um, currently imprisoned in uh, obviously a very secure penitentiary in, in, in the United States. Talk us through that particular case. It's fascinating. Now, what's particularly fascinating about this case is this case has, you might say, all the red flags of, uh, of a medical serial killer. Now, my vision of a medical serial killer had always been like a Charles Manson type, you know, a crazy haircut, mm. swastika on his forehead, somebody that really looks crazy. But here's a typical soccer mom, sort of attractive uh, housewife, you know, who um, you see every day on the street or every day in a hospital and wouldn't give it a second thought that she's even capable of murdering people, yet we suspect her of killing about 30 of our nation's heroes. And the way this case came to light is from a number of her co-workers who went to management and said, management, we suspect nurse Kristen Gilbert of killing a number of patients. And the management said, did you actually see her kill people and went through that whole scenario that I previously gave you? And the nurses got so frustrated mm. that they finally called the inspector general. And that's when we came in. And interesting thing about these nurse whistleblowers. Remember I said to you, how's your background nurse? If we drug tested you now, would you be positive? Well, these nurses that came forward, their backgrounds weren't so clean. They had a lot of problems. But in spite of that, they admitted to their problems. They admitted to substance abuse. They admitted to taking some shortcuts themselves on the job. But they're not killing people. But they're not killing people. And they had the courage to come forward. And without them, we would have never known. So this is... This is the case of Kristen Gilbert. Kristen Gilbert um, had a long history in other institutions of harming patients. She actually uh, called in bomb threats, started fires, but the first hospital never said anything to the second hospital. You know the scenario, never said anything to the third hospital. Yeah. So she used to walk around with an epinephrine pen on her and... Um, her weapon of choice was epinephrine. Now, she loved the excitement of a code. When you look at her evaluation as a nurse, and this is pretty common, you'd see that she was 
more like an average nurse, except when it came to codes. Then she got an A-plus rating. She was the best. Well, if you actually cause the code, you have a pretty good idea of what happened. And if the patient lived or died, well, she didn't really care. She just loved the excitement and the attention that she was finally getting in her life when she took charge of that code. And something interesting also. When a code was called at the VA hospital, the VA police had to respond. And even though she was married, she was having an affair with a VA police officer. And there were times when she would actually straddle the patient during the code and her dress would go up and her garter belt would be shown. And there was like some grab ass going on between her and her boyfriend right there during the code. I mean, this all came out during the trial. It was unbelievable. unbelievable. So it was even a more excitement for her, almost like a sexual experience, as well as the excitement of having the power and control over these patients. Now, you know, one, one of the, the red flags about these medical serial killers is that they're uncommonly accurate in predicting someone's death. So they would say, uh, you see that patient over there, uh, Lawrence, um, if he should expire tonight, you know, uh, around 618, can I go home early? Well, this is exactly what happened. And it's all part of the trial transcript for Nurse Gilbert. What happened was that she went to her supervisor and she said, if patient Kenneth Cutting expires tonight around 6.30 p.m., can I go home early because I have a date? And her boss looks at her and says, well, what are you talking about? We don't expect Kenneth Cutting to expire at 6.30 tonight. I suppose if he does, you could go home early. But So guess what happened to Kenneth Cutting at 6.30? Oh, he expired and she went home early. And this is so unbelievable that I always invite people to get a hold of the trial transcript and read it themselves because she was could be so accurate in reporting somebody's death. She was really, really incredible. Well, eventually her boyfriend prosecuted for the government and she went to trial and she pled not guilty. Now, this was um, a death penalty case in a state of, uh, in Massachusetts that does not have the death penalty. So how did that happen? Well, it's because the VA is a federal institution, so federal law uh, has precedent, not state law. So she went to trial. The trial lasted for six months. So how are we going to show that uh, there was epinephrine in embalmed tissue? So we went to the reader's lab and they said, hey, Bruce, we have this new machine. It's called the high-performance liquid chromatography, et cetera, et cetera. Are you sure you're going to be able to find epinephrine in embalmed tissue? Yeah, no problem. So we're about to go to trial, and then the phone rings, and I get a call from the lab, and they say, oh, Bruce, you know, we're sorry. We made a mistake, and we can't really say for sure that there's epinephrine in the embalmed tissues, but have a nice trial. Holy cow. But we oh, were able to show that the deaths were consistent with epinephrine poisoning, even though we didn't have the toxicology in that case. And she was found guilty. She was found guilty of murdering, murdering a number of veterans. 
with epinephrine at our Massachusetts VA Medical Center. And now the second part of the trial begins because it's a death penalty case. The same jury that uh, pronounced her guilty now has to decide whether she should get the death penalty or not. And that again, and like I said, is very, very moving because the family gets up and they show pictures of dad and talk about his war record and all that. But the jury came back and they said, no, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, no death penalty, which we were kind of actually happy about because she had two young kids. And although you wouldn't know it because the press at the time thought we were just bloodthirsty and wanted to hang her at the town square, but nothing could really be further from the truth. We were very happy uh, with the... uh, with the finding of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. So then I'm sitting in my office one day and one of my agents comes in and says, Bruce, did you see today's New York Post? So oh, what's the New York Post? Kristen Gilbert, who was in prison, has what the New York Post calls, quote, a caged heat affair with another prisoner named Squeaky Fromm. Squeaky Fromm actually was in a group of serial killers who tried to kill President Ford. So out of all wow. the inmates in the prison, she hooks up with Squeaky Fromm because this gives her another opportunity to have a light shown on her, to get attention. So even when she's in prison, she's still seeking attention. Unbelievable, but the true story of Kristen Gilbert. And this squeaky individual that she teamed up with or got with is, has tried to assassinate the president, did you say? Yes. Oh, yes. She was part of Charles Manson's group, and she actually tried to kill President Ford, and that was that's the person that she hooked up with in prison because this gave her an opportunity to get into the newspapers once again. When we were on trial, Every morning, she couldn't wait for the morning's newspaper to be delivered to her so she could open it up and read about herself. Still seeking that attention, whether it be at a code, whether it be a trial, or even in prison, still seeking that attention. Do you think this, it would be naive of us to think that this type of behavior is not still going on in hospitals around the world? Oh, it absolutely is. There are a number of ongoing cases right now that I'm, I'm aware of. There's an ongoing case we we have in Texas. There's an ongoing case in Canada. Um, There's an ongoing case in Germany. And if you think about it, let's talk a little bit about COVID, okay? Mm. Now, what happened during COVID, all right? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the hospitals were inundated with patients, right? I mean, doctors and nurses, bless their heart, they were working around the clock, around the clock, and they needed help. So they needed to bring in additional doctors and nurses from other parts of the country, if they could even find them, to come in and help, right? And there's this group of traveling nurses, and they travel from hospital to hospital to help out. So not only did we have this relatively new group of traveling doctors and nurses, But if you remember, one of the first things that happened during COVID is that families were not allowed in the hospital, right? So not only did you have new staff, but you had a situation where 
the families could not come into the hospital and check on dad or mom or their son. I mean, there was no family there to watch over. So what a perfect scenario if, you, if you're so inclined to kill. Mm. First of all, they didn't really have time to do background investigations because look how many patients are at the front door trying to get in the hospital. Secondly, there's no family there to ask questions, to watch. So right now, as we speak in Germany, there's a case of a doctor who's suspected of killing patients uh, that ended because of COVID. And in Canada, right now, as we speak, there's a case also involving a physician who's accused of murdering a number of patients during COVID. So that really provided a very interesting opportunity but it's very, very, very tiny minority of bad health care workers to um, commit murder. Let's talk about Charles Cullen, another key case in your career of investigations, another individual that was convicted of a number of murders, but equally it's suspected that there are a lot more people that fell victim to his nefarious activities. Good morning to you, Mr. Cullen. Good morning. Do you wish to plead guilty this morning? Yes, Your Honor. And are you pleading guilty because you are guilty? Yes, Your Honor. Did you inject Ms. Stoker with any medication? Yes. And was it your intent to cause her to expire? Yes. And what agent did you use to accomplish that intent? Digoxin. Yes, Charles Cullen, one of the most interesting uh, cases. And what makes him so interesting is that um, he used the heart medicine, digoxin, among other things, because if you think about it, if you're gonna kill somebody in the hospital, you don't have to smuggle in a knife or a gun. There are plenty of death-dealing chemicals right there, some of which are still untraceable, even with today's modern science. So Charles Cullen had this incredible history of working in two hospitals in Pennsylvania and about four hospitals in New Jersey, and incredibly, Hospital One sometimes did a pretty thorough investigation and came to the conclusion that Cullen may have been killing people, but they never called the police. They never called the authorities. They were just so happy to see him move on to the second hospital, to the third hospital, to the fourth hospital, to the fifth hospital, to the sixth hospital. And in a number of these hospitals, there were rather lengthy investigations into allegations that he was killing people, but they never called the police. Not until the last hospital did some courageous employee actually bring in the authorities. And look, Charles Cullen had a history of attempted suicide. He tried to kill himself, I forgot how many times, in the, uh, at least a dozen times. And some people have theorized that when Charles Cullen was killing people, it was actually sort of a suicide by proxy. He was unable to successfully kill himself. So these murders were like a suicide by proxy. He was actually committing suicide through other people by killing them. You know, I mean, uh, my goal here isn't to justify you know, what I did, there is no justification. Um, I just think that 
the only thing I can say is that I felt overwhelmed at the time. An incredible theory, whether it's true or not, I have no idea. But he killed at least 60 patients, at least 60 patients. But what's interesting is that all of these managers from hospital one, two, three, four, five, six, were they ever charged with any crime? Did they lose their jobs? The very first and only case that I'm aware of throughout the history of the world, when a manager is actually charged with a crime is in Germany. In this Niles Hogel case, as we speak right now, a number of managers in Hospital One who suspected something that didn't say anything in the Hospital Two, that didn't say anything in the Hospital Three, they've actually been charged with aiding and abetting the murders. Thank wow. goodness. Thank goodness. Will they be convicted or will they be acquitted? I don't know. The war in Germany is a little bit different than our war. So I don't really know. But at least the fact that they've been charged, and I really hope that they're found guilty, because that will be a tremendous, tremendous message out there to all these other hospital directors who feel it's okay to cover things up as long as that patient moves on. And because, you know, in Kristen, let's just, one thing about Kristen Gilbert is very important. Remember I told you how courageous those nurse whistleblowers were, even yeah. though they had problems with their own background. Yeah. Well, after Kristen Gilbert is found guilty and the whistleblowers returned to the hospital, you think they are treated as heroes? Because they blew the whistle, because they uncovered all these murders? No. No, it's the opposite. Their staff said to them, what did you do to us? This hospital had the greatest reputation for saving lives. Now when people drive by this hospital, you know what they think? That's where Kristen Gilbert worked. This is the hospital where they kill people. That's what you did to us. Why couldn't we just fire her or move her on or something? Why did we have to do this investigation and show that she murdered people here? You know, they, they could close this hospital now. We could all be out of jobs. Thanks a lot, nurse whistleblowers. Thanks a lot. And um, that's the kind of thank you. <laughs> the uh, whistleblower, and this is, this is not a, uncommon either. In a place called Kermit, Texas, which is in the oil basin in, in Texas, very, very hard to get doctors and nurses. Why, do you know where we have to go? We have to go all the way to the Philippines or Ireland. Or God knows where we have to go to get doctors and nurses. So these two nurses, who are actually the entire compliance department of the hospital, they go to management and they say, we think this doctor is harming patients. And the management's response is, you know how hard it is to find doctors in Kermit, Texas? Why, we have to go all the way, you know the story. So you know what, nurses, shut up and go back to your little office and be thankful you have jobs. So these Very nurses nice. said, what the hell do we do now? So one nurse said, I have an idea. Let's send an anonymous note to the Texas Medical Board telling them about this doctor. We'll do it anonymously. Well, the doctor gets wind of this and boy, is he pissed. So what does he do? 
he calls up the local sheriff who happens to be one of his patients and he says, Sheriff, I think these nurses are intentionally trying to ruin my reputation. Do something about it. And the sheriff says, don't worry, doc, I'm on the case. And he actually gets a search warrant for their hospital computers and he sees that they are the author of this anonymous letter. And wow. he actually has them arrested and prosecuted for misuse of official information, which is a felony in those parts. So these nurses get fired, they lose their jobs, they lose their income, and they go to trial. And the jury is out for about 30 minutes and they come back and they say, what are you kidding me? These nurses deserve a medal for what they did, not to be criminally prosecuted. Exactly. What kind of message does that send out? Mm to the nursing community, to the medical community. One whistleblower say, hey, did you hear about those two nurses there in Kermit, Texas? Did you hear what happened to them? Do you want that to happen to you? Well, you know what? If you don't want that to happen to you, then shut your mouth and just be quiet and just go on with your job. And this is another reason why medical serial killers kill so many people. And like Charles Cohen, are able to travel from hospital to hospital to hospital and get away with it until finally somebody courageous comes forth and makes the allegation to the right authorities. It must be one of the biggest red flags is the, uh, you call it the problem child, I don't know if that's the right terminology in terms of the doctor that's moving frequently from medical institution to medical institution. That's be one of the first things you look at. So, yes, yes, but sometimes... Um, Sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes they've only been in, in one, one or two institutions. But again, when death is a common everyday occurrence, people don't question it. People don't challenge it. They just assume that the death was from natural causes. You know, sometimes it's interesting. When I make these presentations and, uh, and with my PowerPoint, I have some video. And one video is a patient in Ohio State and she's talking about Swango. And she says, I was laying in the bed, this blonde hair, blue eyed doctor comes in, gives me an injection and waves bye-bye. And then if the doctors didn't uh, revive me, I'd be dead today. Next video, Zimbabwe. This patient in Zimbabwe says, this blonde hair, blue eyed doctor came in, injected me with something and waved bye-bye. And next thing you know, if the doctors didn't, Revive me, I'd, I'd be dead wow. today. So why don't the doctors and the staff believe these patients when they tell this story? Well, I'll tell you, there's something known as hospital delirium. Now, hospital delirium is a real condition. About 80% of people in the ICU intensive care unit actually exhibit hospital delirium at some point. Now, what hospital delirium is, is you're under so many multiple medications that you could start to hallucinate and you could start to think that you're, you're, you're being tortured, you're in a dungeon, God knows what. So when these patients say that, you know, Dr. Lawrence is trying to kill me, oh, we don't pay any attention to that. It's obviously hospital delirium. And if he keeps saying that, well, we'll just make a little notation in his file saying that patient Lawrence is suffering 
from the results of the multiple medications he's under, a condition known as hospital delirium. And many times when patients will say that a doctor and nurse is trying to kill them, it will be written off the hospital delirium. Now, I'm sure on a number of occasions that may be true, but on some occasions it may not be true. It's been somewhat of an incredibly fascinating and insightful 60 minutes of listening to some of these incredible cases. I think not only am I extremely nervous to go to the doctors now, but I'll, I'll, over, I'll overcome that nervousness. I think your, your line of work has been truly eye-opening as to the nature and the types of people that can commit different types of crime en masse. And, and what really strikes home is the modus operandi between each of these individuals seems to be fairly consistent in the way they repeat their crimes. So my, I wanted to finish up by just asking what's a post-investigative career like for Bruce Sackman in New York? I know you're now doing sort of private detective work in New York State, but uh, what, what are you doing? And obviously we should talk about the book that you wrote, Behind the Murder Curtain, um, lots of things going in, going on in your life. Yes. Well, you know what? I've really sort of um, devoted myself now to uh, reading and studying all I can about medical serial killers, consulting with other police departments like the police department in Germany on, on these cases, and just sort of expanding my knowledge, teaching. I enjoy teaching police officers and medical. My, my favorite group of people, to speak to, by the way, are nurses, by far my favorite group of people. And, and you know something interesting? When I speak to nurses or even physicians, inevitably after class, someone will come to me and they'll go, you know, Bruce, we once had this nurse or we once had this doctor. We kind of suspected something was going on but we were afraid to say anything. We didn't say anything. And he wow. moved on to the next hospital. And that's very scary. And I understand, but it's very, very scary. And this has happened to me on more than one occasion. But I do enjoy traveling and speaking and educating people about this. And again, look, the overwhelming majority of healthcare professionals are the most honest, yeah, educated people on the planet. I've known so many compassionate nurses and doctors that not only are they compassionate to their patients, even after work, then they become compassionate to animals. I mean, they're just the, like the most incredible people. But isn't that the greatest group of people to hide in if you want to be a curate? Look, if you're a killer and if you hide in an outlaw motorcycle gang or an organized crime, that's not really hiding because that's where people think you're going to be, right? But if you're hiding in a group of people who have dedicated their lives to saving people, that's the last place we're going to believe that a killer actually exists. The last place. Well, Bruce, thank you ever so much for giving up your time this morning uh, on, a, on an early Saturday morning in the U.S. The book Behind the Murder Curtain I know is available in all good bookstores. It's available online through Amazon. So thank you ever so much for your service. Thank you ever so much for your stories. And we wish you all the best with your post-investigative career. Thank you. Thank you very much. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. <laughs>